Hello, my friends. Welcome to Let's Talk. My name is Shay Marville. I am the founder of OurMindIsCalm.com. I am an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a curator, a meditation teacher, and a mom. And I am also going through the wildness of this pandemic. I want to talk about the good things, the hard things, the sad things, and the great things. I want to talk about sustainability, healthcare, work, love, relationships, innovation, and technology. I hope you want to talk about those things too. And I hope that this space becomes a place that lifts us and helps us to think differently, to become stronger, to become more resilient, and to grow so that tomorrow we are stronger and we are better. So let's talk. On July 6, 2020, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced the appointment of the Honorable Bob Ray as the ambassador and permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations in New York. Most recently, Ambassador Ray served as Canada's special envoy on humanitarian and refugee issues. He's the former Premier of Ontario and the former leader of the Liberal Party. Ambassador Ray, welcome to the Shea Marville podcast, Let's Talk. So let's talk. I, you know, it's an incredible privilege to be able to spend some time in conversation with you today. And part of why I wanted to speak to you was, of course, to celebrate this new position and opportunity. I think as a Canadian, I am, I am extremely, I, I mean, I'm over the moon um, that your intelligence and wisdom um, is is at the UN table and that we are being represented through through your work and through through your life experience. So so thank you. And um and I thank you for the time uh that you're giving us right now to to chat a little bit and and to be in conversation uh, not about politics but about where we are right now as a world culture. I really wanted to hear what you were thinking about in terms of how the pandemic is impacting us as a global community. Well, that's a big question. I mean, I think, I think the, key, the key thing is, is to, I think, really appreciate uh, how much COVID has magnified and accentuated certain trends in our society, which were already there. Um, some dangerous growths in inequality, uh, you know, technologies which are disrupting what we're doing and how we're thinking, uh, creating greater gaps between people, between generations, even though we think that the technology is linking us closer together. In some ways, it's dividing us. I think COVID has accentuated that. I think COVID, COVID has made all of us um, turn into ourselves quite a lot. I mean, we're in moments of reflection. We're spending time, uh, various times alone, uh, not seeing people, not being mm -hmm. able to connect directly with people. So I think that's all had a big impact. And I think that 
the danger is that, is that when you look at the economic impacts of COVID, how, how much it slowed down our global economy and uh, affecting many countries really seriously and increasing conflict, the number of displaced people, mm-hmm. all those things, it's had a very serious effect on, on the world. Do you, do you, how do you see the UN's role in being a conduit to changing that or um, creating a new way of us working together, collaborating collaborating together as a a world community? Well, I think that's the challenge. I mean... Somebody said to me the other day, and I think it's an absolutely correct statement, is that at 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 the political level, the UN is pretty dysfunctional in in some important ways because of the the political conflicts in the world. I mean the the five countries that have a that have a veto um, have very different opinions, and so things often don't get done at the Security Council, which is sort of the the political executive of the of the UN. Um, but at the same time, uh, operationally, uh, in terms of, you know, what is the UN? Well, the UN is the UN development program. It's the United Nations high commissioner for refugees. It's, uh, it's UNICEF. It's, uh, it's all kinds of programs for, uh, to deal with the environment and to deal with, uh, challenges on the ground. It's peacekeeping where there's, you know, 115,000, people out in the field who are working in a whole variety of conflict zones, that's actually working. I mean, that those people are actually working through COVID. They're mm. working harder, harder than ever. So it's this gap, I think, between, you know, what, you know, people think of as the UN and they yeah. say, oh, well, the UN isn't <laughs> doing anything. And the reality is the UN is two things. It's all the countries in the world collectively together. Um, and then it's an organization that is actually trying to deliver programs and get things done. Uh, and that side of the UN is is actually doing a lot, <laughs> uh, but not always with enough support from the from the from the countries that are the UN. And that's that's I think the challenge is that you know it's, it's a political challenge. It, it, can we globally can we develop the the political will to to transcend some of these differences in order to actually get things done. That's the key issue. And and isn't political will related to value, like what you value as a society? I, I, I think, you know, when I talk to people about the UN, I, I think one of the things I hear is, I'm not sure how it matters to me. Uh, how do you, why do you think the UN matters to uh, an everyday Canadian? Well, I think the I think that, that there's actually there's actually a, a a relevant sort of fact that I think people need to bear in mind, and that is that that, that for a great many countries in the world, the UN really does matter. Um, I mean, in a great many countries in the world, the UN is a huge deliverer of programs. It's it's an enormously important institution in the in the life of of a great many countries. Um, it's true to say, well, look, the UN doesn't deliver food programs in Canada. It doesn't. It's not sending in troops to, uh, you know, deal with <laughs> political conflict. It's, it's, it's not uh, directly involved in a lot of issues. But the fact is, is that it it, it is uh, partly because if you take something like a pandemic uh, as a medical event, as a health event, 
if we don't have global solutions to to the pandemic, then none of us is really safe. I mean, it, it, you know, the pandemic can always come back. So why do we need the UN? Well, whether it's polio or measles or or COVID, we need to have a global health response. And that it's not something we can pull away from uh, or avoid. It's something we have to be part of and we have to support. And that's, I think, very, very important. The the other thing, of course, is that when it comes to uh, the the economic impacts and the the amount of conflict in the world and so on, that also affects Canadian safety and mm-hmm. it affects our economic well being. It may not be direct, but it's very real. Did you did you ever imagine us living through what we're living through now? Did you ever, you know, in all that you've seen, did you imagine that we would be experiencing what we're experiencing right now? No. No. And as a leader and developer and peacemaker, how do you feel in terms of if you if 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 I asked you from one to ten, how optimistic are you? What what would you, what what would you feel? What would you think? Seven, six seven. or seven. Because I'm always going to be on the plus five side. I'm always I'm always <laughs> going to be on the on the positive side because I I think that you know in my own life, um. I, I always try to keep things on that, at that level, <laughs> if not higher. Um, and that is that you, we have to work t- to get things done. It's not like, am I optimistic, like it's an abstract sort of number. It's more like, I think we have to keep trying. And and it, if you stop trying, then, <laughs> then you know that, that things won't happen. But you have to keep trying, even though it's it's challenging. But that's really your character, though. Also, you've you've spent your whole, you know, professional life trying and um, trying to work in areas that are really hard. I I wonder what what inspired that, or what not inspired. That's often to use like what ignited that in you uh, to to go to the hard places. Well, I think I think uh, I mean, first of all, at, at a personal level, I mean, I, and I've talked about I've talked about this before. You know, I mean, I've I've been through periods of personal depression when you know my mental health was not good, and when I couldn't get perspective that would allow me to to see things in a in a in any kind of a a moderately positive light, mm. and and that's a very dark place to be. And um, I I. Um, I, I don't. I don't. I, at a personal level, I don't. I don't want to go back there, and and I and I don't. Uh, I, I don't because I don't think it's a healthy place to be in, and also because I know that that when you're in that state of mind, you, you make bad decisions. You make bad decisions for yourself. You make bad decisions for other people, and and it's not a place to be. So um, I think I start from that premise that that having been through. Some of those valleys, I I, I want to stay on the on the on the sunnier side of the street uh, because that allows me to make better decisions for myself, and it allows allows me to to point out um, how things will get better and things can get better. Um, they're never perfect, no, uh, and you've always got to be thinking that way. Um, 
and I and I think the things that we learn as 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 you go through these processes and talk to other people, and you know get some wisdom from people, you you are able to kind of push ahead, and I think that's that's been that's been important to me at a personal level. It's been it's very important for me to to be able to. Uh, engage with other people about why we should be trying to make it better rather than make it worse. It's a it's a powerful point because right now, as you know, this is uh, not specific to Canada. It's all around the world. People are suffering and struggling with their mental and emotional well-being. And um, one of the things that the pandemic has uh shown uh, and 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 actually um, made worse because of the isolation and all of the changes and having to adapt so quickly is this this kind of loneliness and 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 depression that many people are experiencing because they feel you know hopeless especially really young people that are usually you know who who want to be out trying to create things and make things um many young people around the world are feeling very dejected right now what do you think you know i mean for there's two questions one is you know on from a personal point of view how do you think we address that and do you think that that mental health is is part of the work of the united nations helping with that uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, the, 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 just this week, the Secretary General made a very impassioned plea for uh, for making mental health a much higher priority for for countries and for for us to be really aware of of uh, the risk that we're running and not paying enough attention to to the significance and Im- importance of uh, of mental health. I, I think it's important because. Um, I firmly believe that things will get better. I firmly believe we will get through this, and I and I I believe that um, even for people who are unemployed and who are alone and who have, who are facing you know economic and social challenges, the likes of which they'd never thought they would see, um, things can get better. Things things can improve, and I know for certain that if people. Um, are not able to face these challenges at a very personal level in terms of ability to overcome the forces that make them feel powerless, it will only get worse. I mean, it's it's not as if we have no choice in these matters. Mm-hmm. We do have choice, but the problem, of course, is that um, by definition, being mentally ill means that you're not able to exercise your choice in a way that that works. Uh, and, and that's really why you, I think it's really important for political leaders, uh, for government programs, for you know everything we do in practical senses. How are we supporting people through this pandemic is exceptionally important. And I'm fully supportive of governments that are saying, you know, look, we're going to be spending money in ways that we've never done before. And we're doing it so we can provide people with some security and some sense of hope uh, rather than total insecurity and lack of hope. The problem is that it's only the wealthier countries in the world that are actually able to do that. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges we face, and this is this is sort of the, the what I call the solidarity challenge, <laughs> is that we're we're not able we're not able to empathize with people we whose circumstances we can scarcely imagine. But when you go into uh, parts of the world that are physically just hugely challenged by 
by climate change, uh, by conflict, by the growth of extremism. Uh, and and then you realize that, you know, agriculture isn't working properly and, and, and food distribution isn't working properly and people are living in very, very difficult circumstances. We're looking at the possibility of famine outbreaks in several countries all at once. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think people in Canada, in many parts of the world, I don't think people fully appreciate just how precarious life is for so many people. Well, I mean... There, it's precarious here in Canada for many people uh, on many of the communities that you've worked with over yes. the last, you know, 40, de- um, 30 uh, years or more. Um, and specifically uh, in different First Nations communities, what do you think uh, this pandemic means for for, for for First Nations communities that are are struggling in in Canada. Well, it's a huge challenge. I mean, if if you look at at, at the, the, I mean, first of all, about half the First Nations population lives in cities, uh, and, and but the other half live in their traditional communities, and and those communities are, in many cases, isolated, fly in communities. We're heading mm-hmm. to the winter. We're heading into a time when people can't drive out, uh, can't get out physically, uh, with any degree of, with any facility. Um, and if you get a, if you get a, a, a health, uh, virus spreading, uh, in a remote community, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very hard to contain, uh, and it's very hard to control and it's very hard to stop it having a very serious impact. And people's health conditions often not being the best, they're frequently very vulnerable to, right to the virus. Um, and that's true for, for, uh, for a great many people, but it's certainly true for indigenous people in Canada. Life expectancies are already lower mm-hmm. and, uh, people are more vulnerable. Um, people are less, less likely to have jobs, less likely to have access to work. Um, and we, you know, we are rediscovering how central the work experience and the income experience is for people's sense of well-being. You don't have work and you don't have an income. It's very hard to maintain your sense of well-being. Very difficult. How do we have that conversation about universal, a universal income? Um, this idea that you need a, in, in order for your well-being uh, to 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 go up, you need to start to from a certain economic level how do you think we have that conversation as a as a global society? Well, globally, I think it's difficult, but I think that, and I think it all starts in 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 each country is having this conversation. Uh, I think that uh, it, it, it it's going to be a conversation in Canada and Ontario and in various communities. People are already having this conversation, but I, to me, it's what's interesting is that um, it's sort of what governments are are starting to do. Yeah. You might say, "Oh no, no, we're you know we're not going to have that program." But the, you end up having to do something, right? I mean, you go from saying, "Well, we're going to give everybody so much per month," and then they say, "Well, no, actually, we're going to change the program." So now we're going to give everybody so much per week, and you say, "Okay," and then that's for twenty six weeks. You say, "Okay," then 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 what? Right? <laughs> because this this thing isn't going to be over in twenty six weeks. I mean, it's not going to be all over. Um, and I think the pressure will be on um, every government in Canada, but around the world. And globally, yes, there there is a, there are just debates and discussions about 
how do we move towards you know a, a, a recognition that that they know that we're we can't we can't let the world simply go backwards but i mean bill gates pointed out not too long ago he said we're at risk of losing 25 years of progress in 25 weeks mm. and I, I think that's a very very good way to put it because what he's saying is that you know we actually have made a huge amount of progress in the last 25 years we've increased um, um, the likelihood of children you know surviving through difficult childbirth their mothers surviving through difficult childbirth we're dealing with maternal health we're dealing with you know basic nutrition we're, we're we've made enormous progress in terms of people's basic incomes standard of living has improved um, in some places more than others but it, there's been a steady improvement overall in the last 25 years in the standard of living around the world we're at risk of losing all those things and all the things that go with it in because of the impact of the pandemic. Now, frankly, it's not just 25 weeks. It's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, it's going to be a full year, year and a half, two years. By the time we get through into, you know, from the beginning, from the outset last last March to to where we are, to where we are now. And uh, it, it is it is going to be a huge challenge for for the world to 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 see this thing from a more global perspective. And I think to come back to where we started about the UN itself, it, it, it's as an organization, it's 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 facing now and it's going to face huge challenges and struggles because the demands for services, the demands for what the UN knows how to do uh, as an organization, uh, it far exceeds the capacity and the capacity of the UN as an organization to respond to what's happening depends entirely on what the wealthier governments in the world decide to do. But isn't, how, much, how, how much are they prepared to invest in other countries and other people? That's a key question. Well, is it, but isn't it also this uh, immense challenge right now in a world where there's so much polarization, where, you know, it's so hard for us to have conversations now with people who disagree with, with one another. Um, how do you have conversations about uh, sort of universal income when you can't even, you know, speak to each other respectfully? It's and it's it's not as as bad in Canada, may, or you know, as it is in the U.S. Maybe I, I don't know. You you may be a little bit closer to it than I. What what do you think? I think I think the discourse around the world is getting much more. Um, course, much more uh, mm, personal, much much more difficult, much more difficult, and I think social media is contributing to that, and I think it's making dialogue harder. But I, I, I still, I still think dialogue is always possible. I mean, even in the House of Commons, you know, people do talk to each other. They don't always talk to each other on television, but they talk to each other. And the same thing is true here. I mean, people can disagree quite strongly on what's happening or the conduct of a particular country, what's going on. But there's still lots of ways in which, you know, various forms of quiet diplomacy are, are happening. And, and in the case of, of you know, the, the big question, which is to me, the big issue is how much is it are the wealthier countries actually prepared to do to help the whole world respond to this crisis? That's that's the nub of the question. Um, 
What's the United States prepared to do? What's Canada prepared to do? What's China prepared to do? Uh, what are the Europeans prepared to do? And, you know, you look at the countries that have the means and the capacity and have demonstrated their ability to deal with their own problems. To what extent are people prepared to deal with the rest of the world's challenges? And if the answer is, well, you know, we'll do what we can, but not much, uh, then we're in for a very, very tough um a tough slog going forward because we're actually losing ground right now. We're actually losing mm. all the gains that we've made in improving the standard of living around the world. We're at risk of losing that. And uh, that's something that that I, you know, since coming to New York, I've been thinking a lot about and, uh, and have had to confront. And then a question becomes, well, what do I say to Canadians and to my own government exactly. about the, the need to do more? And, you know, you just keep trying to explain to people why it's important. We're not going to solve the health pandemic without a global response. We're not going to solve the economic downturn without a global response. So we have to participate in the global response. How, how comfortable are you with the term the, the fourth, that we are in the fourth industrial revolution or in this, um, this revolution that is industrial, it's economic, it's digital, uh, it it is it's regional. It it's it's not just about nations. It's about billionaires changing things. It's about social media transforming how we're communicating. What what do you think that means for um, an everyday person trying to refigure themselves in this new economic uh, reality? You know, how do you reinvent yourself right now? Well, I mean, let me just take your take your take your question in phases. I mean, the first part of it is how comfortable am I? I'm totally comfortable. It is. We're in the middle of a of a major revolution. Um, I, I, we call it the digital revolution. I'm not sure what quite what else to call it, uh, but uh, but it, it is it is a revolution in which things are are all revolutions involve things falling apart. Um, and certain assumptions being challenged and ways of life being challenged and things happening much more quickly than people were prepared for. The, the difference is that the pace with which things change as a result of th something like, let's say, the Industrial Revolution, the pace of that change coming out of agricultural and feudal societies is much slower. That pace of change is much slower than what we're facing today. We're facing very fast change. And I think that's what's hard for people. That's what's hard for everybody who's in the middle of it. Remembering that a great many people have lived their lives in often economies and societies that were, that were almost futile mm -hmm. um, in terms of how they functioned. Uh, and and so now we're moving, you know, full bore into the into the digital revolution, um, and and it's certainly true that um, left to its own devices, this form of uh, what's been called surveillance capitalism mm. uh, is much less equal. Uh, it creates new divides between. Uh, you know, those who are can afford to figure out how it works and understand it better, and those who who you know can't get access. I mean, let me give you a practical example. I mean, there's no education going on right now for 
millions and millions and millions of people, hmm. particularly, by the way, girls. There's no education going on for girls. Uh, whether they're, uh, you know, <laughs> in a rural community or in a city or whether they're, um, they're in uh, a refugee camp, wherever they might be, um, there's no access to the technology that would allow them to have access to, to, uh, to education. <laughs> in Canada, um, if you're at, if, if, if the, the, what's happening with, uh, you know, closures and then people saying, well, now we're going to go, uh, we're going to go virtual and everything's going to be done on the net. So you've got to, you know, and then you say, well, I'm actually not on the net. I don't have much access to it. I don't have a computer. Uh, my parents don't have a computer. So how the hell am I supposed to get access to this? And school boards are scrambling to say, you know, how can we possibly, you know, be asking our kids to do that? So if you go to private school, it's no problem. Uh, but if you're, if you're, you know, a kid in a class of 30 in a, in a public school mm. and, you know, 30, 10 out of the 30 kids don't have access to a computer, um, they're going to fall further and further behind. Totally. And, totally. and, 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 and that's going to reinforce the, the growing inequality that we've actually done quite a lot in Canada to, uh, to prevent uh, the, the worst aspects of inequality because we've had government programs that have sustained people. But, you know, we're at, we're at risk here. But if we think we're at risk in Canada, and you think about how the divides work in Canada, think, begin to stretch your imagination, think a little bit more about how it works globally. And it's, it's, um, it's very scary. What's one solution, do you think, to, to that, to that, to that issue? Um, that th that uh, is accessible, you know, that, that, that makes education more accessible uh, and and adaptable to to the people it needs to serve. Well, we've actually been. I've had some very interesting conversations with people at UNICEF about this because UNICEF is is starting an initiative, which I think is very exciting. Uh, that, that I think a lot of people could identify with is to say, you know, we they were setting a global target of making sure that every school is connected and every kid is connected. Um, we, we need to fully embrace the fact that the, 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 this, the new world in which we're in, the, the digital world in which we're living is here to stay, although it, itself it will be transformed you know, from as we go forward. Um, but we've got to make sure that every single classroom and every single kid is somehow connected. Uh, and has access to it, whatever whatever it takes to do that. Um, and I think we've got an, an opportunity to create, uh, and it has to be public-private partnerships that do it because because it's the you know governments don't make good computers, <laughs> from what I've seen. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, the, the, the 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 one thing that capitalism has always been able to do is innovate, and the creation of new technologies and the way that innovation works, and that's something we have to harness. You don't let it go off on its own and just say, "Okay, now we're gonna." You gotta, you gotta harness it, but you, you've gotta, you've gotta recognize that's where that skill set is located. The skill set of innovation hmm. is not located for the most part in government. They have great deal difficulty innovating, but you then got to apply that to say, "Okay, but we want to make this thing accessible." So you've got to use good public policy to making sure that we do this in an accessible way. Now, this isn't the journey of a, of a six months. This mm -hmm. isn't something that's going to happen overnight, but it is something I think we can see as, a, as an important target 
for ourselves to make sure that everybody has access to it. Do, do you think that the social justice uh, movement right now, this awareness we have of, uh, you know, racial uh, disparities uh, is is something that is also allowing that conversation to happen? Like, are those conversations happening together around social injustice and the need for innovation in, edu- in education? Oh, yeah. I think it's happening a lot. I think there's a lot of places in which it's happening. I think, I mean, the thing I found interesting for me, I mean, a lot of things have been very interesting coming here. I mean, the, the extent to which... Um, Feminism is is a true global phenomenon, powerful, powerful global phenomenon. Um, we're seeing the strength of the women's movement in so many different different countries and different places. It's making a huge difference, and I, I think that's that's one example um, that I, you know, that I've, that's come home to me. But as where I mean, obviously in the UN you see it, you feel it every day. I mean, if you you've got, you know, the fastest growing part of the world is Africa. Um, you know, you look, you project the uh, the population, the demographics of the world over the next fifty years. Um, the the, the, the Africa is going to be a huge population base for the whole world, um, and 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 obviously that that creates a dynamic around racial injustice, around you know what's happened historically. So a lot of the things that we've identified with historically in Canada, but. Um, understanding racial injustice as it's applied to us and as we've experienced it it's happening it's happened globally so slavery it's a global a global issue uh in terms of its its lasting impact Mm. uh psychologically structurally on on how the world has worked and and i think the, the more we we embrace that uh reality that understanding uh, the better off we are. The, the more we really embrace it, the uh, and, and just accept it as, uh, as 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 a reality of a world that we that we need to help change. And it, it's interesting. I mean, the, all the issues that we've seen in Canada, the indigenous uh, debate in Canada, how that's grown globally, it's huge, huge issue. Uh, and, and and you know, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Canadians were very involved in in the leadership of that movement. And so we, we, we have a stake in all of this as a country, particularly because we're so much, we've become so much the world in one country, right? Mm-hmm. We've become a country where uh, people come from all over the world to make it their home. How, how do you feel as a human being that is also a, a, a person who is, is male and white um, and, and has has come from some privilege and is a privileged person. How what do you think about your role just as a as an individual who fits into those categories? Do you see yourself as such? Uh, I do because I know that's how other people see me. So it would be silly for me to say, well, no, I'm I'm not privileged and I'm not <laughs> I'm not an old I'm not an old white guy. I mean. Of course I am. I, I mean, I, I, I can't help. But the, I would say a couple of things. One is, you can't help it. It is what it is, right? We, that's that's how we how we are are uh, we've grown up. That's that you can't change your your you can't change your skin. You can't change yeah. who you are. But but you you can 
you you can't be a person, a human being. Uh, and so you say, yeah, well, all those things are true, but above all, everybody is human. And if you say everybody is human, that means rich people are human as much as poor people. It means white people are human as much as black people. It, it means you share a common humanity. And so you have to find ways of sharing that humanity. And you also have to to, to recognize that you know, there's nothing you can do about your past, but you can do a lot about your future. Precisely. Uh, and 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 where you sit, and how you and how well you embrace the world as it is, and how and how well you 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 try to. It's not about running around feel, feeling guilty um, or, or feeling you know just uh, uh, that that you've got everything to apologize for. It, it's more about understanding that. There, there is such a thing as injustice. There is such a thing as unfairness. There's such a thing as exploitation. There is there are there is such a thing as racism. There is such a thing as misogyny, and none of them are good. Mm-hmm. There's nothing nothing good about them. So you won't find me defending them. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? I, I, and I, I think that's important, and that's a choice that I you know you make fairly consciously. You say I I recognize those things exist. I don't like them, and and I'm prepared to work hard to change them. See, I, I think that's a, a really, really dynamic perspective because there's so much room in there for growth and looking at our uh, commonalities. I don't know that guilt um, and and running away from from history helps us to become more compassionate and empathetic towards one another. So I, I, I think it's important for us to be able to have those types of conversations. I, I don't want to keep you, I know you're really busy, but I, I did want to ask you um, a more personal question uh, around, you know, what is it like to do work that is so similar to what your father was doing? Um, and, and you know, what does this moment mean um, in terms of how you grew up and and your own personal story about you know where you came from and where you are now. Well, you know it's interesting. I was I was talking to the Swiss ambassador the other day. Is a very a very bright um, woman who's you know been at the top of her of her country's diplomatic service, and she was asking me questions about myself, and I was saying, well, you know, I I spent time in Geneva, and I, she said, well, how'd you do that, my dad, and so and she said, so let me get this clear. She says, you are now doing, at the age of 70, you know, whatever, 72 now, she said, you're, you're, doing, you're, you're doing the same job as your father did. I said, that's right. She said, man, you're ready for therapy. I said, well, maybe I'm ready for therapy. <laughs> you know, maybe. But actually, I think I've been through the therapy part. And, yeah. I, and, and actually, I'm very proud to be doing this. It's, a one, it's actually a wonderful feeling uh, to know that, uh, this is a job my dad uh, did, and this is a reflection of of a life that he that he led. And actually, the fact that I'm able to do this job is is a reflection of of the education that you know me and my mother uh, contributed to in such a such an incredibly important way. But it also allows me to say, um, like most of us do at some stage in our lives, I'm actually not my dad. Yes. I mean. I I don't I, I don't I didn't always agree with him when he was alive, and there were areas of things that I I took a different view. Um, on the other hand, I've learned an enormous amount for him, and also, like a lot of people, as we get older, we understand a bit of the of of the struggles and the the values that that our parents had. 
um, I don't feel like I inherited this position. You know, no. it's not how, not how it happens. Certainly but wasn't I, a straight line. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't a straight line. And, and I, I mean, that's frankly, probably that's what he probably would have said if I, if he was still alive is what, what took you so long <laughs> to figure out this is actually a good thing to be doing. But I can only say that I'm very, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, and I feel at one with, you know, at peace with myself for, for, uh, for doing this. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Well, I, I think it's also about honoring, you know, the past and we are also in a new world and we need new perspectives in this new world so that we can adapt. Uh, I am, you know, extremely grateful for your time and your friendship. And you've always been extremely kind and generous with me over the last, you know, I think decade and a half that I've been had the opportunity to to connect with you. And I I want to wish you continued success. And um, your success is the success of our countries as well. So um, I hope you come back as we grow. I think this podcast is actually going to grow and we're going to have a lot of very interesting conversations. And so I'm already asking you for time and, um, <laughs> and next, I, and I look time. forward, I look forward to, um, vigorous conversations about, um, about all sorts of things coming. Well, I do too. And thank you so much. It's good to talk to you. It's a real pleasure. And I, I thank you for, uh, for probing and uh, you always have a way of opening up areas of conversation that, you know, I, I might not have thought of starting <laughs> myself, but they take me in interesting direction. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And be well and be safe and all, all good things to your family. Friends, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk. I hope you enjoyed it. We are so grateful for your time. And I want to just thank my amazing team, Stacy Maynard and MCI Studios. We would love to hear from you all. So subscribe at Shea Marvel Podcast Let's Talk.com and follow us on Instagram at Shea Marvel Podcast. Looking forward to hearing from you. Be well until next time. Bye for now.